This podcast is produced in association with our Amplified Podcast Network. We hope you enjoy. Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone in between. Welcome to the third episode of A Theater Kid's Guide to the Galaxy. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. And if you're coming back, welcome back. We are so incredibly excited to be here with you today. I am your host, Luke Stevens, and today we'll be talking about the groundbreaking Tony Award-winning musical, Hamilton. Hamilton is the story of Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers and our first Secretary of the Treasury. This musical is a historical show about the beginnings of America and the Revolutionary War. It follows the life of Alexander Hamilton from when he was 19 years old to his death in 1804, following his triumphs and downfalls throughout his life. Act 1 takes place with Alexander trying to make a name for himself in the Revolutionary War. Hamilton ends up getting a job working for General Washington as his right-hand man, but he still insists on fighting on the front lines. After the British surrender in Yorktown, the nation's focus shifts on how the new government will function, with Hamilton playing a major role. As the nation begins to work towards the future, Hamilton constantly picks fights with the other founding fathers in order to achieve his goals, mainly Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Aaron Burr. One of Hamilton's greatest achievements in the musical is establishing the National Bank, which the United States has used ever since. After Washington steps down after two terms as president, Hamilton's career is thrown into disarray with constant scandals. Near the end of the show, Hamilton endorses Jefferson, and the show concludes with a duel between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, as Burr blames his hardships and failures in getting elected president on him. This results in the death of Hamilton. Hamilton's opening night was on August 6, 2015, and the show has since grossed a total of $649 million in New York City alone, according to the Broadway League. Since its opening at the Richard Rogers Theater, it has won 11 Tonys, including Best Musical and Best Original Score. And now it is my absolute honor to introduce our cast, starting with Parker Mott. Parker. Hi, my name is Parker, and my dream vacation is to go to Tokyo. Next, we have Chloe Fortune. Chloe. Hi, I'm Chloe, and my dream vacation is to travel to Paris. And this week joining us, we have our technical director, Ethan Talbot. Hello, my name is Ethan Talbot, and I think it would be cool to go to London. And our creative editor, Tim Little. Hello, my name is Tim. My dream destination would be Toronto. And behind the scenes, we have our wonderful tech crew, Emma Fleck, Aaron Mott, and Katie Fleck. Now I'm going to pass it over to Parker for the rating system. Here at Theater Kids Guide, we use the planets in one dwarf planet in our solar system as our rating. We use this system to rate everything off of the planet's vibes, aesthetics, or whatever relations we see fit to the topic we're rating. Now with the rating system out of the way, what would you rate Hamilton, Ethan? I think the play Hamilton is Mars because it looks like a very big rock, but it's more detailed and interesting than we originally thought. That's an interesting observation. What do you think, Parker? I think Hamilton should be rated a Jupiter because it was the, it's the biggest planet. So I kind of, Hamilton was like the biggest show for a while. So I kind of correlate those two things. Now, how about you, Chloe? I would rate Hamilton the Earth because it seems to be really well known, kind of how the Earth is one of the most well-known planets. Hamilton, to me, is a Jupiter. It's such a massive show and its presence will always be there. All right, so now that we got the ratings out of the way, what's everyone's just general opinion on the show? Well, I... I liked it a lot early on, like right when it first came to stage. But 
you know, after a year or two, I got kind of sick of people talking about Hamilton so much. Everything was Hamilton, Hamilton, Hamilton. And I didn't, I don't know, I just kind of fell out of it. I'm kind of the opposite of Parker. My first exposure to Hamilton was my middle school theater class constantly singing it. So I was not a big fan originally. I hated it. I would not listen to it. I didn't listen to the soundtrack for years. And then uh, recently I decided it's time to listen to the soundtrack and I actually really enjoy it now. Originally, uh, it was mostly my mom who listened to it all the time, but she introduced it to me. And for my birthday, I went to see Hamilton. So then I really got more involved in it. I think for me, what I struggled so much with it at first was that it was just such a big thing. It was the thing. And for me, it just felt like jumping on the bandwagon. It didn't really feel like loving a musical. It felt like loving being a part of a group that loved a musical. So for me, I had to wait for the hype to die down a little bit to really get into it and be able to more indulge in how good it is. My first like experience with Hamilton, how I got into it, was my best friend Eli and his brother Dan, when we were younger, we would hang out at his house like every single day for summer. And we would always listen to Hamilton and Panic at the Disco. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why we listened to it, but we did. <laughs> And that's how I really got into it, and that's how I started to get a love for it. I think the fact that the show was big was a big turnoff for a lot of people. I remember I had talked to some people like when it was first really becoming popular, and a lot of people wouldn't listen to it because it was so big, but that never really scared me off. I knew since it had gotten so big, I knew it had to be good. So once I like sort of heard something from it, I was like, okay, it's it that song sort of lived up to the hype. Let me go listen to the rest of it. And to me, it did live up to the hype, and I think it still does. I didn't jump on Hamilton at first because it felt like a big commitment. I didn't want to be devoted to a whole new group of people, so I kind of stayed back, but eventually I did get into the music. Yeah, on the topic of the music, uh, do you guys have like a favorite song? Like, What are your top three songs from the show? For me, it changes weekly or daily. I think whatever mood I'm in depends on what song I really enjoy, but... I can, the constant ones that are always my favorites and that I can always listen to are Wait For It, Nonstop, and One Last Time. I think they're all just masterful and how beautifully they're performed and how beautifully they're written. They're just all around masterpieces. I agree with you, Chloe. I feel like it all depends on your mood and what you're uh, into that day. But uh, my top three are Wait For It, Guns and Ships, and Dear Theodosia. Mine changed a lot like through my obsessive phase with Hamilton. Uh, it kind of started with say no to this because I didn't really know what it was about at the time. Uh, and then I think it went to What Did I Miss? That is still my favorite song. I love What Did I Miss? Like, especially seeing it when I went to go see the show and then on Disney Plus later, like recently. It's just such a fun song. He's so... Like, David Diggs is so eccentric and excited. It's just such a fun song. So I agree with the statements made about What Did I Miss? Because that is my current favorite song from the show. And One Last Time, because those are two really great songs. But I think you guys are sleeping on one of the best songs from the show, and that's You'll Be Back. You got to give some credit where it's due. That is one of the songs from the show that you go into, you think of, like, the main song. It's like, oh... It's non, like nonstop, like Dear Theodosia. It's like, I'm not throwing away my shot and stuff like that. 
and, but you then you go in and you listen to You'll Be Back and you're like, wow, he really just stole the show, didn't he? And that's what it is for me. That's one of those songs where it's just like, that is such a good song that I could just sort of listen to it. Every time I listen to the show, I can sort of jump from songs, but that's always when I listen to. For me, there is a difference in the best songs in the show and my favorite ones to watch performed. I feel like there are certain songs that need the staging too to go with it. And kind of same with Dear Theodosia. I love the song, but the staging does it for me. The simple, the simplistic nature of how it's just them sitting on stage singing about their children, which just makes the waterworks come, but it's just not, it doesn't do the same for me when I'm not watching it on stage. I agree with Chloe also that like you'll be back in all the King songs. Those are mostly, uh, I, I feel like they're great songs in themselves, but it's also like the stage presence, like him just being on stage and just dancing around. That was very cool to see. I feel like for me that all of the King songs, they just sort of bring, it's the different styles. Like it goes from like this, like hip hop styling into this just sort of like more like sort of straight sick traditional style. And I think that gives it like a nice sort of shift. You're like, oh, what's this? And it's sort of like the comic relief of the show. I, I think of that as some, like some of the comic relief of the show. And I think that it, it's one of the best. And I think that you can't really have like a list talking about Hamilton songs if you don't include that. I feel if we're talking about the styles of songs, I believe we should point out how the characters are described in their songs. For example, Eliza is always singing in these flowing melodic melodies. I think you just made a great point, Ethan. The concept of character development through the song is definitely present in Burn, which Eliza sings following Hamilton releasing details of his affair with Mariah Reynolds. This is a really good example in the show because Burn shows Eliza singing calmly and melodically yet in strong defiance of the fact that Hamilton seems to get away with whatever he wants. So in Burns, she's really just saying, I won't take this anymore, and then literally burns his words, which is striking and represents her character um, development very well. well. I don't dislike a lot of the songs from the show, but there was one song I really never got into, and that was the song, The Reynolds Pamphlet. It's like the precursor to Burn, if I remember correctly. And it's, whenever I hear it, when I'm like listening to a musical, I always just sort of skip it. I mean, it's an important song, but it's just it just doesn't do anything for me. It sort of sort of fills the gap between um, like Hurricane where Hamilton decides to write about his problems rather than have people talk about it behind his back and reveal everything into Burn. So I feel like that was just there to show people finding out about it. And I personally just didn't like the song. Luke, I agree that uh, I understand it for the terms of plot. I feel like Reynolds' pamphlet and Say No to This are kind of my low songs. Like, compared to the other songs in the play, I feel like it is going to be on my bottom, too. I think what it comes down to is there's so much amazing music in Hamilton that, if anything, is just not up to that mark. It feels like it's lower down on the list. It's still good music. I don't think there's a single bad song in Hamilton. But if it's not up to par with the best of the best, it feels like the worst. Speaking of how great the music is, I believe it is important to say that Hamilton doesn't just get told through the words, but also the different themes and chord progressions. The different themes and chord progressions have different meanings and are woven through the musical. That whole conversation made me think about how the music changed based on who was singing and how that gave the characters a new level of depth. 
And on the topic of characters, do you guys have some favorite characters? I really, really like Burr, which I think is kind of an overall common opinion, although I don't know about that. And then I also think that uh, Washington and Jefferson are both really, really cool characters. They're just, they got a really cool vibe to them. They're unique and they're deep, but they're not perfect. And it's kind of subtle and kind of hinted, which I think is very, very cool. I personally really like um, Angelica and Washington for how well their characters were sort of developed and how well the actors played their part. I thought those two really stood out to me as like really, really strong and prominent characters. And my uh, another favorite character of mine is Lafayette. Not for any particular reason. I just thought he was funny. I just thought um, Davy Diggs' like, mannerisms as Lafayette were sort of funny and it always made me laugh. Lafayette just sort of had a different feeling to him just watching like Lafayette go around and just sort of jump and dance around doing his songs always just sort of stuck out to me and I've always really liked it and like every adaptation of the show I've seen I feel like one of my favorite characters is going to be Eliza because she was not just well written in the musical like all of her songs and performances but I feel like the actors who played them also had a very well staged presence and they really played her character and her emotions really well on stage. While King George isn't a huge character in the show, I love King George. The way that Jonathan Groff made him funny was the best, and I don't think anyone could ever be better than King George in Hamilton. I completely agree with what you said there. I think that he, what, he made the character, and I think that's true of a lot of characters on Broadway. I also want to kind of bring it back to what Ethan said about Eliza's stage presence. One of the big things for me in Hamilton is the stage and the presence of not only the characters on the stage, but also the set. I feel like the set almost takes on its own character presence. Almost, it becomes, it becomes almost another character in the show because of how dynamic it is and how every piece of the set has a purpose and is used so well. It's not used as much, um, but I really did like the rolling staircase. I think you, anytime you saw anyone on the rolling staircase, you sort of knew something big was going to happen. And I don't know why, but just the roll, like seeing someone roll in on a staircase has just always been super cool to me in theater. I don't see what you mean, Chloe, with the, the intricacies. Because there are a lot of, I guess there are some little props, but I wouldn't say it's super intricate. It felt like one place. It never really felt like separate places, even though sometimes it was meant to be. I think that what makes it so intricate is that it doesn't so obviously portray other places. It's not like, oh, we're here, and now let's put something else down the stage, so we're here. It's so subtle, but it's so intricate because it's subtle. I know in one of the, in nonstop, in the finale of Act One, Hamilton goes to the back of the stage and meets Burr at what is revealed to be his home. But it's just an opening in one of the pillars on the stage that goes up to the balcony, which I think it's so clear that it is his house. It's not so obviously intricate when you just look at it. But when you actually kind of think about what everything is, everything has a purpose. I feel like it's they're making the most of what they have. And it's very cool how they can portray like five different places in the same, like with the same group of props. I also like how like they use the turntable to show like it's 
a meeting space, but it's also them walking through the street lanterns. The turntable is one of the things in the show that I think they could have used more. I think it could have been utilized just throughout the show more than it was. I feel like there's a few big moments it's used, but I feel like it's such a cool thing. If you have it, use it more. I feel like it's cool how they use the turntable because all the different directions uh, were used for a significant purpose. I kind of disagree with what you said, Chloe. I think with how they utilize it was very, very, very well done because it sort of, when you got to see it, it was like, wow, that's really cool. And I think if they had used that too much, it sort of just become like, okay, it's there, it's moving. But I think with how they used it, specifically with like Satisfied and other things like that, it was just very well done. And I thought it brought a really cool element to the show. I know we talked a lot about the songs and the different props used, but I also feel like telling the story, they've also, the choreography gives a lot to the show. Like, not only, or for the Satisfied, they go back in time, but it is the same choreography as earlier when they're actually at the wedding. And also when they're talking about in the room where it happens, the choreography on set, they do the same thing, but telling it from a different perspective. I also feel like it's interesting how the choreographer has Hamilton only walking in circles, meaning like a constant forward momentum, but uh, Aaron Burr walks in straight lines because he only makes moves when he's sure that it's the least, it has the least consequence and he's positive that it's what he wants to make. Also, when it goes to the room where it happened, that's when Burr knows what he wants to do. He's like, I want to be in the room where it happens. And he starts moving in those circular motions to show that his character has changed. I think all of those are such cool points. Some of those I hadn't even thought about before. I think I'm glad you mentioned choreography because one of the things I always point out to anybody, if I ever watch Hamilton with them for the first time or if they're going to watch it, one thing I always tell them to watch for is the stage pictures painted on stage by all the actors in the set and the whole the whole package together is just beautiful there every time you look at the stage something is happening on every little piece of the stage even if there's one person on the stage the set and the resources they have are so well used and what comes from that is just beautiful pictures that if you take a screenshot of the screen at any moment in the show you're going to get something beautiful yeah, I think that the directors and the producers and the artistic people who worked on the show did a really great job. And something a lot of people don't notice that I read an article about is there was an ensemble character um, that they referred to as the bullet. They were always there, just sort of lurking and around Hamilton to show that Hamilton was always close to death. Like when Lawrence died, when his son died, they were always sort of right behind him. And then they were the one who carried the bullet from Burr's gun to Hamilton at the end. And I thought that was something I personally didn't notice, but now that I've seen it, it's very, very well done. Luke, like you said, she causes death, but she also foreshadows death. For example, in Yorktown, she shakes hands with Lawrence, who then dies in the next song. Also, when Philip is looking for the boy who made fun of his dad, the bullet tells Philip where to find him. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting like choice that the director made that a lot of people didn't notice. But that also brings forth another discussion, and that is, is the bullet the villain of Hamilton? And if it's not, who is? I don't think the bullet is the villain of Hamilton. I don't think anyone really is the villain of Hamilton. A lot of people say Aaron Burr just blatantly, 
But just because the person we're following in the story has an enemy does not make them the villain. Everyone has good and bad in them, especially Hamilton. He was pretty selfish throughout most of the movie. And I think the bullet is more of a symbol of death rather than the person who's causing it. I think Hamilton, in a way, is also his own biggest villain. He he sabotages himself so much. And I also think the bullet is an interesting point. I think the bullet's more of the silent killer than the villain. It's that silent lurking force of death on Hamilton that I honestly feel like causes Hamilton to be his own villain. I agree with both of you. I feel like it is the course of lots of events that lead up to it, like him writing the Reynolds pamphlet and cheating on his wife. That's also leading to his downfall. You can't say one person is the villain of the entire story, but I also agree that Aaron Burr is the person who eventually does kill him. But I feel like that also doesn't make him a villain. I think the only time where Burr seemed like a villain or acted like a villain was in the last scene of the duel. Because build up to that scene is he starts blaming his failures and his shortcomings on Hamilton and Hamilton's quote-unquote disrespect. I think that was the point where Burr was like, I'm working for myself. This is for me. This isn't for anyone else. This is for me. And so that's when that's when he sort of acted like a villain to me. But I really think the main villain of the show is was Hamilton's ego. Hamilton in the first half was riding high and he got he had gotten everything he really wanted. But then I think his ego got to him and I think Hamilton sort of had a self-destructive destructive spiral downwards. And I think really his ego is to blame. Like we already said, Aaron Burr isn't the villain, but I also feel like it is part of the story where like originally Aaron Burr's jealous that Hamilton has nothing to lose and he just continues on uh, not realizing or having like thoughts of what the effects would be. So eventually when he does realize what he wants, he does go with like a more selfish move. That's also just, it also is him leading up to the actions that Hamilton has made. Why do you guys think Hamilton became such a big commercial success? What made it different from other musicals? Because I noticed that this went out past like the normal just with theater kids thing and sort of went out into people who had really never experienced theater before. I really do think it originally was theater kids. It was theater kids making it big, kind of as I feel like there's always a show that theater kids are really into and it changes and it shifts. But for some reason, this one stuck. And this one transitioned to people who weren't theater kids, quote unquote. People started catching on and maybe they just heard a song on the radio. Maybe they heard one of their friends that is in theater talking about it. But I think it was more a bandwagon thing as more and more theater kids caught on, more and more people, more and more people who were not theater kids caught on. And from there, it just blew up. I feel like bandwagon is part of the reason it blew up, but I also feel because it's so different than previous plays that we've seen so far. Like Les Miserables is like a bunch of singing and all that stuff, but this is more like hip hop and rap. This is introducing new things, new ideas, and it's different from what we've previously seen. It might intrigue some people that way. I do agree that rap is a big reason why people got in the show, 
but it's not the first instance of hip-hop on Broadway. But I think another reason that people got into the show is because of the history factor. Parents wanted their kids who were learning about the Revolutionary War to listen to that to maybe get them more interested. I don't know if I would say that the history factor from, like, parents necessarily was a drawing factor. I think, honestly, a lot of parents wanted their kids to maybe listen to it less because it was such an obsession. I don't think that shows don't make it to Broadway being cookie cutter like every other last show out there. Everyone's unique in its own way. But I do think the cast and the appeal of the cast is one of the big big appeals because I think it's cool. It's portraying the story as very the story of Revolutionary War and early American history in a brand new way. Now that was a great discussion segment, but now we're going to be moving on to our next segment, which is ranking. This week, our rank master is Chloe, and to preface this, Chloe has not seen the list and does not know the topic, so she is ranking this blind. Today's topic is, drumroll please... Outdoor Monuments in Washington, D.C. The list is FDR Memorial, the Thomas Jefferson Memorial, Vietnam War Memorial, National World War II Memorial, and the Lincoln Memorial. I'm going to give Chloe a minute so she can make her list, and then we'll get started. So I grew up in D.C., so I spent a lot of time going to memorials and monuments and kind of enjoying the outside areas of D.C., so this is really hard because I really, really like all of these and I really don't have a least favorite and I don't exactly have a favorite. So this should be fun. At number five, I have the Jefferson Memorial, which again is such a pretty monument, but there's not as much to it as a lot of the others. So that's why it's there. At number four, I have the Lincoln Memorial, which is Really, really cool. I like that they have a couple of speeches up on the walls, and it's a lot of fun to walk around and be on the steps. But there are others in D.C. that I enjoy going to more, and the Lincoln is always super crowded. So I like finding ones that are maybe not quite as crowded and have more space to spread out. So at number three, I have the Vietnam Memorial, which is incredible. The top three on my list are really very close. All of these are very close, but the top three I really love all of these. It's so simple, but yet there's so much to see, which is one of the things that I think makes it so special. So coming in at number two is the FDR Memorial. I go to this one a lot when I go down to see the cherry blossoms as it's right on the water and it's just gorgeous. I love that it's almost more of an outdoor museum in a way. It's a walkthrough experience. If you've never gone to the FDR Memorial, I really, really urge you to go. It's so much fun and it's mostly statues and a lot of stone and it's just really really cool it's very unique and there's nothing else around like it which is why I would say that it would go at number two on my list and coming in at number one is the National World War II Memorial this one's gorgeous I really this is the one I had no trouble putting at number one it's so pretty there's so much to see it's I just I love the placement of it in DC I love it's kind of central, and I love that it has both sides of the ocean, the war on it. I think that the fountain is cool. It's big. It's expansive. It 
it makes its mark. It's very much, it's there. It is there and it's there to stay, which is what makes it super cool. And I think a lot of people agree on that. I think that it's pretty consistently at the top of a lot of people's lists because it's such a huge event in our country's history as well. I just want to say thank you to Chloe for putting that as the number one spot. That is, in my opinion, the best looking memorial in D.C. Uh, I also am a little bit biased because that holds a special place in my heart um, because I had a family member who fought in World War II. So that was always a special place. Um, I have very good memories from going there with him and it was always just a really good time. So that one has a special place in my heart and it will forever be at the top of my list. One other thing I want to mention about the World War II Memorial is that there is a little engraving at the memorial called a Kilroy, which was a popular little signal often found in graffiti during World War II. So it's hidden kind of in an unassuming place at the memorial, and I've looked for it, and I found it a couple times when I went there, and it's just kind of a little fun little snippet of background, and it's just... It brings in the times of World War II to the memorial, which I think makes it really, really unique. Well, that was a great list. Thank you, Chloe. And if you have a list of your own, please let us know on our Instagram at Theater Kids Guide to the Galaxy or on our new Twitter account at Theater Kids GTG. Now we are moving into our last segment of the episode, which will be debate. Today's debate will be between Tim and yours truly. Tim and I will have pre-assigned sides to argue for or against, and we do not know what those sides are. Once the topic is introduced, Tim and I will have one minute to write up an opening statement for our argument. Tim will read his opening arguments, then I'll read mine and rebuttal claims made in his. After a few rounds of back and forth, Tim and I will be stopped and given a minute to write our closing statements and final arguments. With the rules out of the way, you ready to get started, Tim? Yeah, let's do this. Let's pass it over to the moderator of our debate, which will be Chloe. So this week's debate topic is, drumroll please. Do you eat rice with a fork or a spoon? Luke will be debating for fork, and Tim will be debating for spoon. I will now give you one minute to write an opening statement on this week's question. One minute, starting now. One minute, 37 seconds later. And that's time. Tim, are you ready to give your opening statement? Yes. Personally, I think that rice is easier and more efficient to eat with a spoon than a fork because you're less likely to lose rice on each bite you take. Okay, Luke, are you ready to give your opening statement and opening rebuttals? Yes, I am. When eating rice, it is best to use a fork. Yes, things can fall in between the parts of the fork, and yes, you can use a little bit of rice, and yes, it's not the most efficient, but a fork allows you to pick up other parts of the food so you can combine the rice and other portions of your food easier than with a spoon, which allows you to get the best bite possible. All right, well, that is a, a, a whatever point. You can also do the same thing with a spoon. Depending on the size of the spoon, you can scoop up both rice and other foods. Like if you're eating with like chicken or something like that, you can scoop up rice and chicken in one bite and be able to get it all in your mouth in one go instead of having to worry about trying to like get the food off of the fork with your mouth. But with a fork, you can just take a piece of chicken like you normally would and then scoop up some rice and then you have it 
easy access. You don't worry, have to worry about scooping up an individual piece of chicken, which might take a little while to get onto your spoon. You can just pick it up and then scoop some rice and you have a full and complete bite of all your food, which allows for the best eating enjoyability. See, except you might be able to get the chicken or the whatever you're eating really easily off the get-go, but then you have to spend the next like three minutes trying to get a decent amount of rice on without having everything fall off. With a spoon, just one scoop and you're good to go. Yes, with a spoon, you can scoop up more rice, but that will also create an imbalance and an imperfect harmony between what you're eating and the rice. There'll be too much rice and it will overpower whatever, what other thing you're eating. Say you're eating chicken, for example, like you used before. If you're eating chicken, you're going to try and get some chicken and you're going to try and get some rice. You're going to get too much rice. Now you just have a spoonful of rice. That's kind of sad. You want the chicken. And yes, I want to see, I would like to see someone go up to like a rotisserie chicken and cut it or pull it apart with a spoon. You can do that with a fork. You can pull things apart with a fork easier, which will allow you to get the chicken and then get the rice and then have a full incomplete bite while you're over there at the other side of the table trying to cut a chicken with a spoon. But see, what you neglect to mention is that whenever you usually eat like rice with chicken or other meats or anything like that, it's not like massive pieces. They're all bite-sized. And if you think about it, the rice is never in like a perfect ratio with the chicken. You don't always have a bite that has chicken and rice. Sometimes it's just rice, sometimes it's just chicken. And so that's why being able to just scoop it up and take it in one go is more efficient because then you're not having to worry about, well, what do I do? Because this bite doesn't have chicken, but this one does. But when you're able to break up the chicken into smaller pieces with the fork, you can get more chicken with your rice. So you're not just left at the end with a big pile of rice or a big pile of chicken by themselves. I think the fork allows you to get the best combination bites out of your food than the spoon. I think the spoon lacks that capability. And I personally think the spoon for eating rice is a waste of a dish. Because most times when you're eating, say you're eating dinner with your family, and you have a fork and a knife, but then you have a spoon. Are you really going to make someone wash that spoon after using it just to eat some rice? Wouldn't you feel terrible about someone having to wash that spoon? Wouldn't you? I mean, you no, would. No, not, not really. I, I wouldn't really feel bad because I know that I'd be enjoying my rice more by eating it with the spoon. Sure, there might be like a tiny little bit of guilt there because they're having to wash one extra like piece of silverware. But I will know that I enjoy my meal more because adding on to the points I was making before, it's less likely to make a mess. So while you might have to spend the extra two seconds it takes to wash the spoon, at least you're not spending five minutes trying to clean up all the mess you made on the table because you spilled rice everywhere because you somewhere in your brain thought it was a better idea to use a fork than a spoon for rice. Well, the only way you're making a significant mess on the table with a fork is if you can't hold a fork properly. That's the only possible way you're doing that. And so are you saying to me, Tim, Tim, Timothy, are you saying to me that you would enjoy your food more if someone had to wash the plate after, are you insane? Are you giving me the point that you? I'm not a sadist. I'm not. I'm not deriving pleasure from these people having to wash extra dishes. Then why force them to in the first place? You're what already- if we're having soup with the rice? Then we're already using the spoon. Then what are you going to do with your fork, Mister? Huh? You can't eat sp- soup with a fork. Is that a challenge, sir? Sure. You and me eating competition after this, okay? We're going to eat rice, soup, and like chicken. I don't know. And we're going to see who can eat it the quickest. So tell, me, so, so tell me this. Tell me this, Tim. If you okay. were eating a chicken, 
you were just eating. Where did you use this chicken? Yeah, like yeah. Chicken breast on your plate with some rice. Tell me, what in utensils are you going to use to eat that chicken? Not the rice, the chicken. A knife and a spoon. You're going to use... Think about it. I don't even have to use the knife because if you use the spoon correctly and you push down hard enough, you can use it like a knife's edge. You know that scraping noise people get when they scrape stuff across their plate? That's the only thing playing through my mind right now when I imagine you cutting chicken with a spoon. Listeners of our podcast, can you tell me in full confidence that you could tolerate someone sitting there cutting meat with a spoon? Could you sit there at a dinner table and watch one of your family members or friends cut meat with a spoon and not lose your mind? You can imagine someone sitting there with a fork and putting it on its side and gently cutting a piece of chicken or cutting a piece of any sort of meat. But can you imagine doing that with a spoon? Listeners of the podcast, I hope you're not shallow enough to care whether someone uses a spoon or not when they're eating their chicken. Because I think that really just says something about your character if you judge people based on what utensil they use to eat their rotisserie chicken. Well, I don't appreciate the fact that you just said, um, tried to insinuate that I was saying our listeners are shallow because oh, they're I'm, not. I'm insinuating that you're shallow and you're trying to get your listeners to hop on that same sort of shallowness. I'm trying to look out for our users here. I'm making sure they don't fall down the same twisted rabbit hole that you've happened. So tell me this, Tim. Are you okay with people sitting there listening to noises about a spoon scraping across the plate? Are you saying that's something people spoons don't make to? If you're cutting with a fork and a knife, right? It's going to make the exact same noise as if you're cutting with the That's with if a you push hard enough. A with a knife, you don't need to push that hard. With a fork and a knife, you do not need to push that you hard. Can but still, with a spoon, you can still saw back do. and forth the spoon. Because you know, the whole point is that with a knife, you're sawing back and forth. With a fork and, like, no knife, you're sawing back and forth. With a spoon, it's the exact same thing. You're not, like, swinging your spoon around as you're eating, trying to make as much of a racket as possible. Listen, ladies and gentlemen of the podcast, I put forward that not only has Tim tried to attack my own character over a debate for a spoon, but I think, personally that Tim does not account for the fact that most people when eating, when eating just a piece of chicken and rice would not have a spoon on the table. What use would you have for a spoon in a table setting? You have your fork. Efficiency. That's the use. Efficiency. Sure, you might not have but as at the easy cost of the time eating the of chicken. the waste of time that someone's going to have to wash that spoon. You would do have you both- be the one. Do you want to be the one to wash that spoon? I don't sure, think I will wash the spoon. It is worth it, okay? Your poor mother, father, sister, or brother has enjoyed a nice meal where they are eating and enjoying themselves. But do they get to go spend time with their family? No, they have to pick up your spoon. Your See, spoon. That's, that's just not being accountable. I would pick up after my mess and I would take the two extra seconds it takes to clean up a spoon and a fork. And well, so I'd like to call back to a past argument where you accused me of being shallow for criticizing someone for using a spoon to eat rice. What about the listeners of our podcast who already use a fork to eat rice? Are you calling them shallow too, Tim? No, I'm not, I was calling you shallow because you were so quick to deny the uses that a spoon has when eating rice. I'm that not denying them. I, you forget at the beginning of my argument, I said it's more efficient. But I am just saying I would rather not like to see someone using a spoon rather than a fork. And don't look at them eating. 
look, look at look them in the eyes as they're talking over a nice but I would like dinner. But I would like to have a nice conversation, and I can't help but notice someone trying to cut a piece of meat with a spoon. And I am sorry, that is an image I cannot get out of my okay, head. Okay, 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 okay. Break it up, you two. Let's agree to disagree and stay friends. Sounds good to me. And if we ever eat lunch together, I'll be sure to give you a fork. And for me to you, a spoon. But wait, who do you think won the debate? Do you think that Luke had the stronger point, the fork? Or do you think that Tim pulled it out with spoon? Please let us know at Theater Kids Guide to the Galaxy on Instagram or at Theater Kids GTG on Twitter. We briefly interrupt this podcast for a quick word from our host, Luke Stevens. Both members of the debate love all of our viewers and are currently enjoying a plate of rice and chicken with their respective utensils. Now back to the podcast. Sadly, that is all the time we have for today. I want to thank each and every one of our listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in and make sure you come back next week for more of a Theater Kids Guide to the Galaxy. Please follow us on Instagram at Theater Kids Guide to the Galaxy and Twitter at Theater Kids GTG for more content. And feel free to check out all the other awesome podcasts on the Art Amplified Networks. Thanks again for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye.